Hey everyone, just wanted to run a quick reminder by you that if you just want the audio for these videos and you don't want to worry about running up your data or using your phone battery all night, you can check out The Graveyard Shift with Mr. Davis. Every single video that gets uploaded here, the audio only version of that will be uploaded to Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, just about anywhere that you can find podcasts, you can find The Graveyard Shift with Mr. Davis. So, check it out link in the top of the description if it's something you want to use to pass some time during the night shift or to help you get to sleep at night. Hope you all have a wonderful day, afternoon, or evening. And I got a quick question. What's the scariest thing that's ever happened to you while you were on a camping trip? Think about it down in the comment section below. And be sure to drop a like and subscribe if you're new here. Now, let's get into tonight's stories. Five people went camping in the woods. Six came back. I woke up as we hit a particularly rough patch of ground. I'm a second year college student, and I was on a trip with a few of my friends into the wilderness to go camping. It went about as well as you would expect, and was overall a fun experience. Dylan was taking us all back home in his van. There was still a large patch of wilderness between us and the city outskirts, which is why I'd fallen asleep. And that's when I noticed... Him. Outwardly, there was nothing really off about him. At least not that much. He looked like he could have easily been from our group. But he wasn't. Because five of us had gone on this trip. I did a quick head count, wondering if I was just drowsy, and counted six. So, who are you? I asked him. It was odd to see someone new here, but the thing was that I guessed we decided to pick up a hitchhiker while I'd fallen asleep. Lucy gave me a weird look. You alright there? This here's Grayson. You know him. I turned to him again, wondering if by some odd chance I did know him and reached the same conclusion I had earlier. I had never seen this man before in my life. And again, we had done headcounts regularly, over and over, because Blake wouldn't let us not do them. It was drilled in my head that it only went up to five. That's it. Five, not six. And we did this over and over. So often there was no way I could be making a mistake. I opened my phone and went through the pictures I'd taken during the trip. There was not even a single sight of him at the edge of any frame, let alone a full-blown photo of him. And the most people in any photograph was still five. I turned to Lucy and said, What's with this weird joke? What weird joke? She asked. Why'd you pick someone up? And why are you pretending like he's always been here? Lucy really wasn't one to joke, but I guess this could have been part of an elaborate prank. Lucy frowned. Who are you talking about? Grayson, I hissed as softly as I could. I know he wasn't with us before. What are you talking about? Lucy asked. He was here with us the whole trip. Frustrated, I tapped Blake on the shoulder. Hey, Blake, why don't you do another head count? Ugh, buzz off. I'm serious, I said. 
All right. One, two, three, four. That was my number. Five came from Lucy. Six, Grayson said. I glared at him. Again, I knew I wasn't mistaken. Dylan was driving, but he was the most reliable member of the group, so I tapped him on the shoulder. What happened, mate? What's the deal with Grayson? When did we pick him up? Dylan frowned. Bro, he's always been here with us. What are you talking about? Okay, no. They were definitely gaslighting me. Blake actually seemed to remember something. Hey, yeah, Grayson's always been here with us, hasn't he? We both went to the bush together, I remember. I frowned as it sounded like he was saying something, but I then turned to see Grayson's reaction to this. He hadn't said a single word at all. He was just staring out the window as if he didn't have a care in the world. He then turned very abruptly and told Dylan, Hey, can we stop here? I need to take a leak. Again? Dylan asked, but he stopped the van anyway. Grayson got out and I saw him turn toward the woods. Maybe it's just an overactive bladder, Blake said. Wait, you're telling me that you stopped before? Oh, yeah. Wait, you were asleep, right? Yeah, I had to go in the woods and Dylan had to go too, Blake said. I think I began to understand what had happened. I'd fallen asleep and Blake went to go outside, so they stopped. But then Blake came back with Grayson at the time. And everyone apparently accepted them. Oh, yeah, you guys were gone for a long time, Lucy said. My heart started racing as time dragged on. It soon became ten minutes since Grayson had left us. Should we go and... Dylan got no further as a howl erupted from the woods around us. It didn't sound like anything I'd heard before. Rather, a mixture between a grown wolf's and a human infant's cry. And there were more of them. Uh... Guys, Lucy said, pointing to a point in the woods where I could make out a pair of orange eyes looking at us before they disappeared so quickly, I wondered if it had just been a mirage. Dylan, let's go. We can't leave Grayson behind. Grayson's the one who probably brought these things to us, I said. How come you guys can't see that? Other strange, shadowy figures were there just behind the tree line. I had a feeling that they weren't going to remain behind the tree line for long. Dylan, floor it! This time it was Lucy who screamed, and Dylan started the van. Behind us I could hear the same strange screams we'd heard earlier. We didn't get very far as Dylan stopped. What happened? Blake asked. I, I, I don't know, Dylan said. I got out against my better judgment and saw that both our rear tires had been slashed. Grayson snake. And then I saw it, coming from the trees, a creature that looked almost humanoid but had a wolf's head. I think it was wearing a wolf pelt. It let out a scream and I dashed back inside. What happened? Dylan asked. That thing you guys let join us just slashed both of our tires, I said. The cries grew louder around us and more of the same figure came out under the road. I'm typing this as fast as I can on my phone. I have no idea what those things are, but they look like they're ready to tear us to pieces. Lucy's a sobbing mess next to me, and to be honest, if it wasn't her, it would likely be me, but I'm trying to hide how scared I am right now. I won't lie, though. I think the end is near for us. 
We can't drive any further. Any bright ideas on what our next move should be? We broke into an abandoned amusement park in Ireland and discovered the real reason it was abandoned. I grew up hearing second-hand stories of this amusement park in Ireland called Mosney. My older cousins would always talk about how much fun it was going there as a child. It had closed before I was born, so I never got to visit, but hearing so much about it made me envious. I was talking about it with a bunch of my friends, but one of them suggested we break in and check it out for ourselves. I was a bit reluctant, but my girlfriend Chloe looked really excited, and I didn't want to disappoint her. We were all pretty inebriated, so obviously it seemed like a great idea. My best friend Mark drove as he was the only one of us with a license. His girlfriend Lisa was cracking jokes in his ear and trying her best to distract him. We pulled up outside the fence and quickly made our way inside. We walked a short distance before turning a corner and standing there with our mouths hanging agape. The park was in immaculate condition, and the lights were on in every building. My legs moved forward in autopilot as I walked into one of the nearby chalets. There was fresh fruit sitting on the table and I took a bite and my mouth watered at the beautiful taste of the apple. I heard excited cries from outside and I rushed out to catch up with the others. They were in a nearby arcade dropping money into coin machines. Mark came running over and telling us to follow him. We entered a nearby building and I almost screamed in joy as I saw the swimming pool. The water was crystal clear and it looked so inviting. Someone yelled, Cannonball, and I laughed as Alan ran past me wearing nothing but his boxers. He jumped out and I had to back away as the water went flying in all directions. The rest of us quickly stripped off to our underwear and followed him in. I lay in the water enjoying myself while the others splashed about me. Chloe began complaining that something was touching her, which I initially dismissed as there was nothing in here but us. Chloe began screaming, which shook me out of my daydreaming, and I looked over to see blood gathering around her in the pool. I ducked my head under the water and began to panic, as I saw hundreds of smiling children with red eyes standing at the bottom of the pool. Their hands were clawing at Chloe's skin, and I could see cuts all over her flesh. I screamed at the others to get out of the pool as all the children began to tear in her flesh. Pandemonium ensued as we all desperately tried to escape their grasp. I was almost pulled under the water as a hand latched onto my leg like a vice grip. I kicked out with my free leg and managed to dislodge their grip. I reached the edge of the pool and pulled myself out. The others quickly followed with Chloe floundering behind. She had just reached the edge and we locked eyes moments before she was pulled beneath the surface. The lights suddenly went out, leaving us in utter darkness. The only thing I could see were the hundreds of red eyes peering at us from the pool. I felt dead inside as I knew I wouldn't be able to save Chloe. I turned and fled out the door in my boxers to find the others cowering inside. None of us had managed to get our clothes, so we were all shivering from a mixture of being cold and terrified. I flinched as something hit me on the cheek. I gently rubbed my face and was shocked to discover blood on my hands. 
I let out a cry of pain as I was hit with multiple things. I looked up in shock to see the coin machines were moving and were somehow firing coins at us. Everyone around me was covered in cuts as the coins flew at us in quick succession. I used my hands to protect my face as I backed away slowly. Alan was standing behind me, looking like a deer in headlights. I tried to get him to move, but he barely registered my presence. I watched his head rock backwards as I grabbed his arm to force him to come with me. I froze in place as he turned his head to face me, and I stared into the mutilated mess that had once been his right eye. I could see a coin resting inside of his eye socket. He opened his mouth to speak, but nothing came out before collapsing to the floor. I thought about dragging him away, but was forced to run as the coin machines began unleashing a torrent of coins toward me. I caught up with the others who were standing on the edge of the pond, each of us covered in multiple cuts with blood pooling beneath us on the ground. I was trying to come to terms with everything that had happened in the last few minutes as Lisa sobbed uncontrollably beside me. Mark was standing there, off into distance with a shell-shocked look on his face. Mark turned me with a pleading look on his face as I looked at him in confusion. His legs gave way beneath him and I realized in my horror that he was being dragged toward the pond. I rushed forward to discover a dozen small tentacles had attached themselves to his legs. I looked toward the pond and saw a giant mouth with numerous rows of teeth lying just beneath the surface. I acted on instinct and began kicking at the tentacles in a desperate bid to free my friend. I was forced to back away as more tentacles surged forward and tried to grab onto me. Mark was utterly silent throughout, and he gave me a sad smile moments before he was pulled to the mouth. I had to turn my head away as his body was torn apart by the teeth. Lisa screamed as his blood-soaked body was spat out and landed beside us. Every piece of his flesh had been ripped off, leaving him unrecognizable. I reached out and took Lisa's hand and dragged her backwards as the tentacles began moving toward us. I began running while pulling Lisa behind me in a desperate bid to reach the exit. I turned the corner to see the same shellettes from earlier and I knew we were almost there. I stopped dead in my tracks as I spotted the Dodge-in cars at the end of the street. They were moving around and blocking our way out. They must have seen us as they began surging toward us. I pulled Lisa into a nearby shallot and slammed the door behind me. I backed away as they repeatedly hit the door in an attempt to force their way inside. My eyes darted around the room, and I almost vomited as I spotted rotting fruit sitting on the table. I remember the fruit I'd eaten earlier and had to cover my mouth to hold in the bile that was building in my throat. Lisa stood there, motionless, and flinched away every time they hit the door. She had an almost crazed look on her face as she stared at the door. I barely had time to react as she lunged forward and out the door. I ran after to see her rushing back into the park with the Dodgems in hot pursuit. One of them hit her in the back of the head, causing her to fall face first onto the ground. Before she could get up, two more of the cars hit her from either side and crushed her skull. Tears flowed down my cheeks as I turned and ran toward the exit while praying they wouldn't catch me. I hopped the fence and reached the car only to discover that it was locked and the keys were somewhere inside the park. I now cower beside the car and stare off into the darkness and pray that the red eyes looking back are just animals.
Don't buy books off the dark web. I can't be very detail-specific here due to the nature of my job, but I'll try my best to communicate the story as best I can. I work in the cyber crimes division of a law enforcement agency. That's about as specific as I can get. And I want to be clear here. Most of the stories that you read about the dark web are outright fabrications. The tales of red rooms and stories of hiring hitmen are practically universally untrue. Most crimes take place on your normal, everyday web. One Tuesday afternoon, though, I got a call saying there was a new case for me. Well, the officer on the other end of the call didn't seem to be too sure if it was a case for me, but wanted me to have a look anyway. I went down to talk to two young boys. Both of them were teenagers, likely still in high school. I was wondering what this was all even about when one of them started blabbering about something they got off the dark web. Apparently the two of them were doing a TikTok or YouTube challenge. I don't care to remember which one it was, but they were looking for things to buy off the dark web. Again, honestly, there's very little actual shady activity that goes on the dark web unless you want to buy drugs, so the two of them were mainly disappointed. Until they found a site that sold books, one of which they bought. I was then handed the book in question. I put on a pair of gloves and flipped through it. It was filled with photos of a young lady. Initially, they were of her smiling and in locations such as that of a meadow or city square. Though as it went on, they became more provocative, for lack of a better term. She began wearing outfits like a maid uniform or a catgirl cosplay, and the last few photos were of her wearing nothing. Is this all you wanted to show me? I asked, wondering what the fuss was about. It was then that I was handed a card, one that had come with the book. It said, Thank you for your purchase, dear customer. Inside, you can find a treasure trove of photos of a young girl. Though that's not all that's special about this book. To make sure that it is truly one of a kind, we made sure that you could get the full experience. The book is bound with her skin, so feel free to gently caress the leather as you think of her. Again, thank you for your purchase. At this point, I should probably mention for those who might be unaware what anthropomorphic bibliopathy is. It's the name for the practice of binding a book with human skin. I probably don't need to say this, but it is illegal. Even assuming the skin was from a cadaver, you'd run into laws dealing with human remains. This card, though, from what was written on it, it was made to sound as if the skin had been taken from the girl while she was alive. Well, either that or she'd been killed and then skinned specifically to make this book. I thought the whole thing was an elaborate joke. My first hunch was that the two boys were in on it, but they seemed too scared for it to be a hoax on their end, and I interviewed the two of them separately, and their stories held up. Alright, perhaps they were telling the truth, but that didn't mean that the book was really bound with human skin. Even if it felt like leather, it was most likely animal leather, and all this added for flavor. I told the officer in charge of the case just that and said that there was no real need to investigate further, though I did give the young boys a warning regarding buying things off of sketch websites. And that's when the case ended. Or so I thought. As it turns out, the officer in charge of the case decided that on the off chance it was real to get the book tested. 
And it turned out the leather binding, the book, was, a matter of fact, from human skin. As you can imagine, interest in the case surged after that. We were dealing with a potential murder case now, and we called the two boys back. I was also brought back to try and get to the root of things, and I was able to get the tour address of the site that they used. Unfortunately, all I got was an error message when I used that link. I did some more sleuthing, but that got me nowhere. Frustrated, I turned to other sources for help, but there was little progress that I was able to make. Further analysis of the skin revealed that it did belong to a woman and one of Caucasian descent, which all lined up with what I saw in the photographs. But there was little else that forensics could do as the process of preparing the leather made many tests unviable. A DNA test of the skin didn't reveal anything, and we searched far and wide to see if anyone recognized the girl in those photos. No match till date. The case was about to turn cold when I managed to find an unexpected lead on a forum I caught wind of someone else who had purchased a similar book and was confused regarding the veracity of what was claimed about it. It was three states over, but we managed to track down the poster who was a woman who had bought it out of morbid curiosity. Forensic testing revealed the cover was made of human skin as well. She had a different tour link, one which I tried, and this one actually worked. The site by itself was nothing very impressive. It was as basic as could be, kind of like old sites back in the 2000s. I would have thought that it was a cheap prank based off this alone, but the two cases made me hold back my skepticism. I took screenshots of the website and confirmed with the two boys who first came to us with this case that this was the site we were looking for. Both of the books had been mailed from fake addresses for mailboxes within large cities, so there was little to go on there. Given this, we decided to try the site for ourselves and placed an order, only for nothing to turn up. If anything, what happened was that the site's URL no longer worked. And it's here where things took a sinister turn. One of the boys, the one who had actually ordered the book, went missing one day. He was coming back home from school, and then... Well, there was no further trace of him. A manhunt for months came up with nothing, until one day, the other boy came to us saying that someone had delivered a piece of paper to his house. It wasn't a normal piece of paper, it was a roll of parchment. Testing later revealed that the skin was human, and DNA testing showed that it was from the boy who had gone missing. Upon it written with what was later confirmed to be blood were the words... Stay out of our business. I don't like to admit this, but that single incident spooked me beyond anything I'd ever encountered. I'm not really used to being in a line of fire. Yeah, I know, I'm part of the law enforcement, but my work is usually done behind a computer screen. I didn't catch a wink of sleep for three nights after we confirmed what it was. I vividly remember how this mother broke down in tears when we gave her the news. There are no more leads aside from that anyway, and I honestly want nothing more to do with this case anymore. People who would gladly skin someone and use that skin are not people I want to be close in contact with. Now, the case
case might be over, but I'm leaving this here as a general warning. Do not buy things off the dark web, even if it's more than likely a joke than not. Because sometimes, they might not be kidding. I never should have gone through Violet's things. A few years ago, when I was still in high school, my grandmother passed away. It came as a surprise to everyone. She wasn't that old, just past 70 and no major health problems. Even so, she died of a massive stroke right there in her living room while she watched Jeopardy. I remember feeling like everything was thrown in chaos when she died. Since our family, that is, my mom, dad, sister, and I lived the closest, it was up to us to make all the arrangements. It was particularly hard on my mom, who had to grieve her own mother while planning a funeral and fending off greedy aunts and uncles who came out of the woodwork looking for their piece of the inheritance. What I remember the most is Grandma's house. To no one's surprise, though some people's displeasure, Grandma left her house to Mom, the daughter who had stayed by her side all these years while the rest of her children dispersed across the country. My parents, after much debate, decided we'd sell our home and move to hers. It wasn't a huge change for us kids. She just lived across town, so we'd still go to the same school and everything. What it did mean, though, was that we'd have to go through all of Grandma's things and decide what to do with them before we moved in. I remember it so clearly because my parents actually pulled my sister and me out of school for a full week so we could help with the house. We were excited at first. What kid doesn't want a week free of school? But pretty soon we realized we'd just exchanged one prison for another. Every day was back-breaking work, hauling things to and from the house, and sorting items into piles destined for antique stores or junkyards, cleaning every room from top to bottom and so forth. But the day we got to the attic, everyone was a mess. My sister and my mom had a huge fight that morning, so she was helping Dad load furniture in his truck to take across town to the thrift store. That left Mom and I alone in the sweltering attic in an unseasonably warm spring day, rummaging through forgotten boxes and junk while we swore under our breaths. We'd cleared a good portion of the room out when an old trunk caught my eye. It was a faded green color and had heavy metal clasps. Judging by how hard it was to open those clasps, they hadn't been disturbed in years, maybe decades. It took some doing, but I finally managed to wrestle it open. Inside, the trunk was full of mementos of a bygone era. The first thing I saw was a lace wedding dress, yellowed with age, but otherwise in perfect condition. Underneath it was a photo of a beautiful woman in a dress, standing with her handsome groom. It was old taken in the early 1900s at the latest. I called my mother over to show her what I'd found. She took one look at the photo and said, Oh, that's your great-great-grandmother, Hester. And look, that's her first husband, John. They say she was quite taken with him. Broke her heart when he died in an accident at the rail yard. Then, of course, she married your great-great-grandfather, Theodore. Mom and I were both happy to abandon our work to rummage through the trunk. For the first time, I really appreciated my mom's depth of knowledge about our family history. She was able to tell me stories behind almost every item in the trunk. 
This handkerchief is from your great aunt Rose. She embroidered it herself when she was a child. I wonder how your grandma got a hold of it. I thought everything of Rose's was long gone. Oh, this was your great grandpa's pipe. He used to smoke this every night after dinner. Your great grandmother made him smoke it out on the front porch, rain or shine, because she hated the way it smelled. And on and on we went, until we came to a small wooden box at the bottom of the trunk. I opened it up, but I couldn't make sense of what I was seeing. Mom, what's this? She looked at a long string of something. Buttons, I realized, as she turned it back and forth to get a better look. Oh, this is a charm string, she said. What's a charm string? It's something girls used to make in the late 1800s. They'd collect buttons and sew them to string. The catch was that you couldn't buy the buttons yourself. You had to find them and get them as a gift. Ladies could trade buttons or ask them for boys they liked, and they'd get together and tell stories behind the buttons. Legend had it that once your charm string had a thousand buttons, it'd bring you luck. Mom reached back into the box and pulled out a slip of paper on which was written a name. Violet Blackwater. Who's Violet? I asked. I'm sure I've heard that name before, said Mom, a crease forming in her brow as she thought. Oh, that would have been your, let's see, your great-great-aunt Violet. I've run across her names in some of the family records, but I don't know much about her. She died when she was young, in her early teens, I believe. The family never really spoke about her after that, as far as I know. I don't think her grandmother even knew about her. How did she die? I'm not sure. Tuberculosis, I think? I'd have to check her death certificate. It must have been awful. I felt a momentary pang for poor Violet. I wondered what it would have been like to slowly suffocate while everyone watched helplessly on. I wondered if she'd work on her charm string to pass away the hours in her sick bed. Did she ever believe she'd got better, or did she know she was doomed from the start? Mom must have noticed the sadness on my face because she said, You know what? You should keep her charm string. I looked up at her in surprise. Really? Really. I'm sure she wouldn't have had one sitting in a box forever. Now you can have it, and when someone asks about it, you can tell them about her. That way we can keep her memory alive. My sadness quickly faded to excitement when Mom handed me the string. It was full of the most beautiful buttons I'd ever seen. Buttons with intricate designs, detailed paintings, glass beads. I'd wondered where she'd gotten them all, who'd given them to her and why. If she'd asked her crush for a button, and if so, which one was his? I kept the charm string in my room and showed it to all my friends who came over. Some thought it was cool, but most didn't really get it. I didn't mind, though. It was special to me, and that's all that mattered. One day when I was bored, I took time to count all the buttons on the charm string. Violet had managed to collect 642 buttons. I found myself wondering if she'd been trying to get 1,000 in the hopes that it would cure her illness. From that day forward, I dedicated myself to finishing Violet's charm string. It wasn't easy. People don't wear nearly as many buttons as they used to, so... Yeah, I didn't just happen to find them out and about very often. I had to ask people for buttons, which was pretty awkward sometimes. Sometimes I got lucky, like when my mom's friend Kathy gave me a whole box of buttons she wasn't planning on using. Other times I could go weeks without finding a single one. 
It took me nearly a full year, but finally I made it to button number 999. That meant there was just one button left, and I knew exactly who I was going to ask. I had a crush on this guy, Michael, who I'd been friends with for years. I was pretty sure he liked me back, but not sure enough to actually make a move. I got it into my head that it would be so romantic to ask him for the last button. Then maybe the charm string would bring me enough luck that he'd say yes when I asked him out. When I asked Michael for the button, he laughed. He knew all about the charm string since I'd been bugging practically everyone for buttons by that point and gave me one from his band uniform. I still remember what it looked like. A bright gold button with a liar stamped on it. I rushed home right after school so I could sew the button on as soon as possible. As I sat there admiring the finished charm string, I thought about how I'd asked him out the next day at school. I'd asked if he wanted to see a movie that weekend. Something scary, so he'd have an excuse to put his arm around me. He was going to say yes, I just knew it. I was so excited that it took me forever to fall asleep that night, but eventually I managed. I'm not sure what it was that woke me up, but suddenly my eyes were opening to my dark room. The only light coming in was from the half moon. I sat up in bed, blinking the sleep out of my eyes and waiting for them to adjust to the low light. I froze when I realized someone was standing at the foot of the bed. It was a girl who couldn't have been much older than me. She was thin, her face so gaunt, her cheekbones showed through, and she was as pale as snow. She wore a white lace dress with full sleeves and a high collar. There was something mesmerizing about her. I couldn't look away as she smiled gently at me. Thank you, Emily, she said, for finishing my charm string. Because of you, I can finally have the husband I always dreamed of. I didn't understand what she meant, but it was hardly my biggest concern at the moment. Violet? I asked, my voice barely above a whisper. Her smile grew and she turned and looked to her left. It was only then that I became aware that there was another person in the room. I couldn't breathe as I forced my head to turn slowly, slowly until my eyes landed on him. There was Michael, his face awash in terror. He was wearing a suit I'd never seen him in before. He was shaking like a leaf. Emily? What's happening? I tried to say something, anything, but words failed me. I just stared as his breathing picked up and his eyes filled with tears. One day we'll meet again, said Violet. I trembled as she reached across the bed to grab the charm string. And when we do... We will thank you properly. I blinked and they were gone. I shot up in bed, startled awake by the shrieking of my alarm clock. I looked wildly around the room for any trace of Violet or Michael, but of course they weren't there. It was just a nightmare. An awful, sick nightmare. But if it had been a nightmare, where had the charm string gone? I searched the bed, but it wasn't there. It must have fallen under the bed while I was asleep. I started pulling the storage boxes from under the bed, but I couldn't seem to find it anywhere. 
before I completed my search, I heard Mom shouting at me to hurry up so we wouldn't be late for school. I had a hard time putting the dream out of my mind as I rode the bus to school. I tried to forget it and think only about asking Michael on a date, but every time I did, I saw his terrified face in my mind's eye, and it left me feeling even more shaken. Finally, I got to class and gave a deep sigh of relief. As soon as I saw him walk in, I'd go back to normal, and I'd be able to forget my stupid dream. But he didn't walk into class. And he wasn't in my third period class either. My nerves only grew when my fifth period teacher announced that we would be having an emergency assembly during sixth period. But then the other students started to whisper. I'd seen one girl crying next to her locker in the hallway after class, but when I asked what was wrong, she bolted. My worst fears were confirmed during the school assembly. Michael... Michael had been found dead in his bed that morning. There weren't many details yet other than the doctors thought it was an aneurysm that killed him. Just one of those freak things that can happen to anybody at any time. After the announcement, I was in hysterics. I ran out of the school gym and had a panic attack right there in the hallway. I remember the guidance counselor coming after me and helping me to her office. She called my parents and had them take me home right away. In the car on the way home, I sobbed to mom that it was all my fault. I told her the whole story about the charm, string, and violet. She was bewildered, in no small part, because she hadn't even heard Michael was dead yet. By the time she pieced the whole story together, she pulled the car over and yanked me into a tight hug. It's not your fault, baby, she said. It was a terrible accident, that's it. You just had that dream because you've been thinking about him so much, that's all. she was wrong. It wasn't a dream. I'd been the last person to see Michael on this earth. Of that, I was true. In the weeks that followed, I only became more convinced that I'd killed him. Everything added up. The suit they buried him in was the same one I saw in my dream, and the charm string? It vanished. I never did manage to find it. Eventually, I stopped talking about it. I let everyone believe that I'd finally gotten over it and understood that it wasn't my fault. Mostly I did it so that people would leave me alone and my parents would stop fighting about me all the time. It worked, so I guess that was for the best. But there's one thing that I never told anyone, not until now. After Michael died, I did some more digging on charm strings. And it's true, some people believed that a thousand buttons on the charm string brought you good luck. But others believed that whoever gave you the one thousandth button was your fated future husband. I accidentally married my crush to a dead girl. And I'll never forgive myself. <laughs>